Welcome to episode 11 of the Analytics FC podcast. Uh, as usual, I'm joined by uh, Sam Gregory. Uh, and this week, we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing a roundtable. Um, so the guests are Ben uh, Ratkiller Torveny uh, <laughs> and Bobby Miguel Delaney Gardner. Hey, boys. <laughs> How's it going? Hello. Hello. So, uh, first thing up, uh, PDO. Um, so, Sam, what do you? What is PDO? Why do you uh, hate it? <laughs> I don't know. I think hate is a strong word. But uh, so PDO is safe percentage plus um, conversion rate, I guess, which is shots on target or the number of goals you score divided by the number of shots on target. Uh, so the reason people use it is because they use it as like a proxy for luck. So the idea is if you have a very high PDO, you're getting lucky. These results probably aren't sustainable because you're not keeping up the shot numbers or whatever to keep up with it. My main argument against it is that it's sort of meaningless. Like it's two, it's two things that are not related at all that we've added together in some mishmash. Like there's no reason that save percentage should be at all related to your scoring or conversion rate. And there's different reasons why like a team save percentage might be high for a period of time and that may or may not be sustainable. There's a lot more reasons why having a high conversion rate might actually be sustainable over time. I mean, if you look at the top teams like Bayern Munich and Barcelona, they actually have high conversion rates and conversion rates that stay above average. I think Higuain and Messi are two of the only players, but two players that have consistently had high conversion rates. So to sort of put that against them by saying that you have a high PDO, that's going to regress to the mean is I think a little counterintuitive because we know it's not going to regress to the mean. Right. I think as well, like it can, um, it can be quoted as like, Oh, they got a PDO of, you know, 110, whatever, that's high, so they're going to cool off. And it's like, that's potentially true, but there's no analysis there, right? You, there's no attempt to look at why it might regress, what's going on there. Um, and ultimately, yeah, I, I think that it, it, it needs to be dug into often um, and, and just having it as this one number with a terrible name that doesn't mean anything. It's kind of yeah, the name, the name, the name is a huge problem, especially when you're trying to explain it to people who aren't. I don't even think it's people who aren't statistically versed. I think just trying to explain anything when you don't know the name of something that sounds like an acronym is really annoying. Because you just have to try and invent something that stands for PDO. But I don't really know how to explain it like succinctly. With expected goals, I can say it's X Y Z. With PDO, I'm a bit lost. Yeah, and I think the fact it doesn't have like a good acronym is just because there's no good thing to call it because it isn't actually related to anything we talk about in football. Like expected goals make sense because it's how many goals you expect a team to concede or to score. I mean, what does what is a PDO? What is save, save percentage plus conversion rate doesn't sound very nice. Right. I think another thing is it's a stat that comes from hockey. Um, and I think in hockey, the kind of reversion to the mean that you see with PDO is stronger. I mean, I'm not as well-versed in, in um, hockey analytics, so I could be wrong there. But I think with football as well, like there's more systemic effects, especially in attacking, that can drive a conversion rate. Like Barcelona, for instance, have high conversion rates because they get into really good positions. They're really good at football. Um, and... You know, to, to just suggest that, that we'll regress is not true, um, especially when you've got other metrics that are becoming more and more popular, like expected goals and expected goals per shot, which are kind of seem to me likely to 
supersede PDO as a, as a kind of metric. But equally, if you look at PDO across like a small sample size, it instantly answers the question of like why a team is doing so well. So if you take, say, uh, Leicester so far this season, uh, their PDO is really high. So that instantly straight away answers that question that, you know, well, it's dropped down a bit now, but at the start of the season, people are thinking, oh, you know, could they challenge for top four and all this stuff, which like on the face of it is really just like ludicrous. But equally, if you back it up with PDO, even though it is kind of this metric, which is difficult to, you know, define and understand on the basis of it, it is, are you scoring, you know, a, a high number of your shots or are you saving more than average? So yeah. I think in small sample sizes, it works perfectly. Secondly, when you sort of mentioned Bayern Munich and Barcelona, these are like two teams out of like a good hundred in the in Europe, which are like decent sized, good professional teams. So they are probably going to have higher PDO than normal, like you say, because of that, you know, advanced finishing and advanced saving that they have in the team. But equally, a lot of other teams that are smaller are naturally going to have PDO tending towards 100 just because they don't have those skills. But I'd argue that, like, saying Leicester has a high PDO doesn't tell you anything about why Leicester is doing well because it's not telling you, okay, are they, are teams finishing poorly against them? Is it down to save percentage? Is it down to them shooting from like high locations. I mean, it doesn't tell you anything. It tells you they have a high PDO, which is nothing. I mean, it doesn't mean anything in a footballing context. So if you even just breaking that up into conversion ratio and save percentage tells you a lot more about maybe why Leicester is playing well than saying, or why Leicester is getting good results than saying they have a high PDO. Right. And equally um, with your, yeah, no, I completely agree with what, what Sam just said. And I think as well, you say that teams generally go around 100 and fine, but, you know, you've got Tony Pulis' Stoke, which the shot ratio is constantly hated, but obviously Tony Pulis is some kind of magician um, and, and consistently outperformed those, and that wasn't just luck. You know, there was lots of work into that. And on the other side, you've got Andre Villas-Boas' Tottenham, which were, you know, taking shots from poor locations consistently, which had really good shot ratios. Um, and then probably a lower PDO. Um, and we know these things, but if we just look to PDO, PDO is essentially just another obstacle between looking at the numbers and actually getting an efficient analysis of what the real situation is and that's actionable. I mean, I mean, yeah, like if you're, if you're trying to communicate this information to someone and say, right, are we bad? Do we need to make a decision on... Or do we need to change something? I guess you may want to use PDOs saying like, well, we're doing badly, but it's unsustainable. But, you know, if you went to a club or something and said that, I, I feel like it's not yeah. as actionable. Um, it's not something that you can do something with without further analysis. So why not do yeah. I think it's like the opening door of analysis. Like James York will say, oh, West Ham's PDO is ludicrously high. But then he'll look into at what point they were scoring. They were scoring their first two shots on targets in games where they were going 2-0 up. And so I don't ever think it stands alone. But as with most of football analytics, it, it, it kind of can be part of a cohesive overall argument. So what do you guys think of like uh, 11 taking 11 brought out a new sort of idea of a metric called Expectopedia? So instead of just incorporating actual shooting and actual saving percentages, it uses expected goals data to sort of look at what your PDO should be versus what it is, because obviously the randomness in goals, things like that, you can strip away that look and, and noise, I guess, and have sort of an expected value for PDO instead. Sam, would you feel that's like 
a better metric to use or do you just feel PDO in general is a bit of a, you know, not that useful? Well, it still, I don't think, fixes my major problem, which is that it doesn't mean anything. Like even just put it into expected save percentage and expected conversion rate. That suddenly makes it much more meaningful because you can actually narrow down on what the problem is or what the area that you're overachieving is. And it gives you much more information just looking at two numbers instead of one that's meaningless on its own. Right. I think as well, like, yeah, the idea of an expected PDO is, like, is a nice idea, but ultimately, if you have expected goals numbers, it's kind of redundant. Like, if I'm looking at a team and I say, right, their expected goals value is, I don't know, five, um, but they've only scored three, I don't need an expected PDO to tell me that that is underperformance, right? And then, you know, I can dig into that and say, well, actually, yeah, they are taking shots from good positions. That's likely to... Um, to not continue uh, that underperformance. But, um, yeah, I think the idea of an expected PDO is it's kind of redundant if you have the, you know, the expected goals model kind of does that job intrinsically anyway. Maybe that's unfair. Um, and correct me if, if you think that's, that's wrong. No, I, just, I don't feel that's wrong. I think that expected goals... You know they are far more useful, and the only problem I'm seeing is that the the reason why the PDO is save and shooting percentage is that these are the two key things that are you know helping your team win or lose. You either are scoring the majority of chances, or you're not letting in as many shots. You, you know you're you're either letting in loads of shots and not scoring, or you know a combination of those two things, which is why they're added together because the team's fortunes on the pitch are down to some mix of those two. So maybe stripping them apart separately you know is better for more clarity in terms of a standalone save percentage and scoring percentage but a mix of the two you can definitely see you know you can see these really really highly outperforming teams so say you have Liverpool's PDO currently is 78 uh, from objective football um, so that means that when the new manager comes in after the international break, the, you know they're going to benefit from a PDO bounce. You don't need to know the specifics of that. You just know that the team is underperforming with regards to the you know average level. I'm still I still quite like PDO, but just just because like James York uses it and quite a few other writers use it, it sets the scene quite nicely to go on some underlying analysis. But equally, yeah, probably uh, agree with you, Sam, that it's not like the whole you know the end story. Probably. It's good for telling the what, but not the why. Yeah, which is what we have with quite a lot of metrics, but I think PDO especially the one, but not the one. But the thing is, like with PDO, you're int- especially for someone who's never heard of any football analytics concepts. You're introducing a new name that means nothing, a stat that's more difficult to explain to someone, and gives you less information than giving two stats that people already would be familiar with. I mean, people will understand what save percentage is right away, and conversion ratio takes about five seconds to explain. And they both give you much more information than a stat that has a crazy name that means nothing. It's probably like the stats community's version of talking about passing lanes and like unnecessarily codifying things in the tactics world. I mean, it probably is useful. I feel like it could be explained easier and be more accessible to people who uh, might not have heard of it before. Yeah, I mean, I know I have definitely used it in the past. Um, and like there are reasons for that, right? Like it's not there's a reason why it's persistent. It's not utterly useless. And I think if anything that makes it maybe more annoying because kind of you find yourself looking at it, it's like, oh well, 
you know, it's quite easy to use, but I think that it's better to use other things. I, know, I, I yeah, I'm very much in agreement with what, what Sam said, I think. Um, I think equally, like, agreeing with Sam as well, that it's good as an analyst to, like, keep asking these questions and keep trying to find the, the sort of deep-lying reasons for a team's play or their results and to keep, like, digging down to, you know, these more granular metrics like expected goals is, you know, it's it's good for a couple of reasons. One, because you're looking further into the data and two, because you're going to have more of a sort of robust answer and more of a, an understanding of the game itself anyway. So in terms of, like, an analyst not wanting to just say PDO is the answer, I guess it's good to keep exploring these things and question the metrics that are used like by a lot of bloggers and by a lot of near you know uh, mainstream media now in sort of the football world right yeah i don't think pda is ever going to be like the mainstream breakthrough is it i don't think one day john cross is going to wake up and embrace pda <laughs> randomly right well i think um i was kind of thinking as well um about this as like a link to the commercial versus public, but obviously, um, so I think this is something that obviously Bobby is much more clued into, but kind of it seems to me that in journalism there's kind of this idea of reporting and analysis. You have people who are part of the chain of disseminating information from clubs out to the fans through contacts and people they know and, and speaking to people. Um, and then you also have journalism, which is concerned with analysis, um, speaking about, you know, tactical writing or why is this club doing well or whatever. Um, and I think that data analytics and, and the use of data kind of is obviously much more suited to the, the, the latter type. Um, but then it seems to be, I don't know, there are other obstacles in the way um, because of this kind of, at the moment, despite there being two different types of this journalism, it seems like everyone does a bit of both. I don't know if that's accurate. Um, I was kind of just putting this in as a rough idea. I don't know if you actually want to go through it anyway. No, definitely. Definitely want to sort of explore around it a bit further. Um, I guess... It's weird because being like it, like someone in the analytics area, we're all writers in the area, apart from Sam, who's on a temporary vacation. Uh, but like, you know, these mainstream journalists have got to write for the mainstream media, um, which is why I guess we don't see as much in-depth or adoption of the so-called fancy stats as A, we'd like to, and B, like we sort of expect now. And I guess that's because we all are in this sort of bubble um, of you know, expected goals and, you know, PDO, if it doesn't die soon, things like that. But equally, I think that the way that stats is slowly being integrated into the media is, it's good, but equally, you know, I don't feel that a lot of the journalists are stats literate or they fully understand, you know, how these stats are being used. And you can see that on things like Who Scored and Squawker, where they just plug in stats for any reason, mainly to just create content that that drives clicks and, in turn revenue like there are reasons why this analysis it's probably a lot better on the amateur side of things than the professional sphere but it's just like do, do you guys really think that it's ever going to go you know we're going to see mainstream writers in the guardian and the times actually adopting things like expected goals because you in that you've got to convince a lot of the 
mainstream core audiences that these are like interesting and understandable concepts, which obviously we know they are, but the average reader of those you know newspapers might not be on board as much as we are. Yeah, well, listen, I think this is what in, uh, I'll, you go, Sam. It's cool. Well, I was going to say I think that, that the resistance to kind of stats is kind of it's not as simple as just people not being data literate. I think in many cases, you know, the use of data. And I think this is something that Joel was talking about. Um, but I think I sort of disagreed with it at the time, but I've come more around to is that um, you know by using numbers and things and saying, oh well, Giroud's actually got this expected goals value, he's actually like done quite well, is I think that it can come across as like, this is how you should watch the game. We want you to watch like this. Um, and I think some people just, like, they just don't care. Like, they just don't want that kind of, I guess, analytical perspective on it because part of the joy of sports is that kind of rationality. And for me, I don't find, you know... I don't, like, if I go to a match or I'm watching it on TV, I'm not really thinking entirely, like, oh, better get the shots ratio up or whatever. Like, <laughs> that PDO. Yeah, like, I'm not, you know, <laughs> I'm enjoying the football for, like, football. But um, I think that's too subjective, but carry on. <laughs> <laughs> so I've just shocked you with the revelation I actually watch them. <laughs> yeah, wait, football's actually real? <laughs> well, I, I mean, I find it quite funny when journalists um, seem to imply that the stats community is really arrogant and in the way that it, it analyzes football. Yes, obviously, but surely every um, particular sect of trying to analyze something, you, you kind of want arrogance from that. You kind of want them to say like, hey, we can give you this. I mean, you don't want the tactics community sitting there being like, oh, I'm actually not sure if our formation plays will ever be anything real. You don't want that. And so when journalists then say, oh, I like stats. I'm not sure if the mainstream do. They they sort of give up the fact that they have a role to play in that. They're what the mainstream see. So they have a very direct influence on what the mainstream want. And so, I mean, like the BBC using shots per 90, at what point is it just so stupid to not be doing that, that they start doing it? At what point do the journalists become so statistically versed that they can't not use it? So you're suggesting that there's like a, I guess, like a journalistic responsibility to offer this? Well, I, I mean, I think it's just, it's a bit patronising to, to imply that people aren't statistically versed or, I mean, the, the, the analytics community, community probably does come across a bit arrogant sometimes. I say probably, definitely does come across a bit arrogant sometimes. But I think we'd be surprised how few people have ever heard of anything like expected goals or shots on target ratio, which is a very self-explanatory phrase. But a lot of people would take a second and be like, oh, wait, I need to think about that. We have the idea that possession is good, vaguely. We have the idea that shots are good, vaguely. But past that, um, I think barely any of it has managed to scrape into the mainstream. And we've got a hold-up who writes the mainstream, um, who broadcasts it for that, I think, at least a bit. I mean, baseball, I think, is a good example to look to. I think in baseball, we're never going to get in football to the level that they are in baseball in terms of analytics and what sort of concepts they discuss in the mainstream. But still on actual broadcast, there's very few advanced stats. But if you look at even just like mainstream newspapers or websites, there'll often be two articles beside each other. You'll have your one that drops terms like OPS or weighted runs created plus or things that are a little more advanced. 
that, and they won't give an explanation. Oh shit, the lights just went off here. <laughs> oh, oh. Haven't moved. Okay, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. Um, so in, they'll give more advanced stats, just and they'll just drop them in. But right beside that, you'll have someone who's saying, okay, well, right now, Russell Martin isn't playing well because he's struggling for confidence or whatever, which is what we get in football now. And I think that kind of reporting is never going to go away, but the idea is in the mainstream, are we going to get the other kind of reporting, the little more in-depth analysis beside it that works sort of, so you can read whatever you want, you can like whatever journalists you like, and that's still going to be there. It's not one's going to completely replace the other, but the thing is now we only have the one. Yeah, it's true, especially analytically. Like You think that if you separate football reporting into the reporting and the analysis, the reporting is probably as good as it can get right now. Like someone scores a goal in the Premier League and you'll have 14 journalists tweet at the exact instant that it goes in. So um, I don't think that's going to get much better. But the analysis has been really under underappreciated, I think. I, I mean, I, I don't look to mainstream sources for in-depth analysis or anything that builds on my understanding. I'm looking for the more niche things. I mean, why does Statsbomb have over 5,000 followers? Because there's obviously people looking um, for something a bit more interesting. Speed, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, Lagoon. How, how many readers do they get? There must be people looking for this this more detailed level of analysis. It's the same thing with, like, say, Michael Cox. Like, his analysis is something completely different, and probably, like, when he launched the site all those years ago, it was probably the only site of its kind, and probably still is, apart from um, the guys at Spiel Verlagerung. Um, <laughs> I know, yeah, they, that I know, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, but then, equally, like, Cox is like a one man show. There's only so much time he can devote to writing, and then, equally, he wants to put it on zonal marking or like the guardian so like there's definitely this area which you know the tactics guys michael cox occupy where there's literally not enough writers to get that high level of analysis out if you want tactical analysis like they try and cover as many games as they can but there are people who will literally just keep reading 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 that stuff because it's so interesting and it's so detailed but you just can't get the content like i've never seen anyone go out and do a massive tactical rundown of like Watford against Bournemouth. Like no one's going to do that unless the, the sort of core media adopt that because it's not interesting enough for the tactics guys. Whereas, you know, if the mainstream media can create that area and just do these, you know, in-depth tactical reports every single game, that would probably drive readers for the fans of those clubs. Like, it's... yeah, yeah, you've got to think that all the Watford and Bournemouth fans would be reading that. If the Guardian tomorrow did a uh, look at Swansea Tottenham from a tactical point of view, an analytic point of view, anything sort of niche, I guarantee that almost every Swansea fan on Twitter would, would come across that. Yeah. So just Probably. Point, you, you bring up like Watford versus Bournemouth, but I think last year Tom Payne wrote a, a tactical analysis of Bournemouth versus Middlesbrough, which is debatably more niche, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the Bournemouth example is a really bad one because Eddie Howe is a really good manager. But if you did like a QPR Harry Redknapp era against someone... Like, there's no tactics involved there, yet people would still read that. Yeah, no, I think um, I think as well, um, it's something that I've noticed, is that as soon as you drop below, like, the Premier League and then the big European leagues, the, um, the level of, um, the level of analysis just drops, like, if you want to find, um, you know, analytical writing on the championship or League One, it's much harder to find that. Um, and I guess just because of less demand. But 
Well, I mean, maybe there's less demand, but then why are people constantly refreshing BBC Sports Gossip page, constantly retweeting completely unverified transfer ITKs on Twitter? Like, I do think there's demand. I just think it's misplaced. I think people are like, oh, I would really love to have this new signing because, I mean, if you're a Middlesbrough fan, the only news you're going to see about Middlesbrough is, is transfer signings. You're not going to see an in-depth look at the tactics from the weekend or anything like that. That's the thing, like, Sorry, as soon as you like write something that for a certain fan, like you could write anything about a certain fan base or a certain player for a new team, and the fans will just gobble it up. It's like the my Brentford piece over the summer. You know, you have your core analytics followers who will enjoy it, and then so many Brentford fans read it because it's about yeah. their team. They want to understand it, it more because they literally don't have a clue. Like I met ben, the besotted Brentford guys at a football sports federation federation event, and they came up to me. And the first thing they said was. So this Tom Warble guy, is he correct? And I was like, I don't really know. We'll see what the hell is going on at Brentford. Exactly. So that's like an example of where, you know, Ben could go and write a Kike piece about Middlesbrough when he signed and say, like, who the hell is Kike? And that will get so many views because people want this, like, insight from someone, whether they're, like, verified, verified or not, purely because it fills that sort of gap in their knowledge of the game and of their team. Yeah, I think as well there is part part of it. I mean, it's just kind of this indiscriminate demand for content. Like, you see that with, like, BuzzFeed as well, right? You know, there's not much insight in a 61 GIFs of toasters that look like chairs, but, you know, there's <laughs> content. And I think a lot of the football stuff is the same. You know, people just want to read something. And I think as well, if I write something um, and it's kind of statistically based and it says something nice about someone's team, they'll be like, yeah, exactly. And if it says something not so nice, like, oh, they're overperforming, they're taking shots from bad locations, it's unlikely to continue, they'll be like, well, you just don't know anything. You can't, can't, can't say anything about this. <laughs> um, so I think there's that as well. But um, I think yeah. that, that in general probably comes with being statistically versed, because right now football journalism is one big like confirmation bias trap so it's like, I think Gonzalo Higuain is great. I can go and like look at his World Cup-ness on YouTube, or I can go and read what Sam was alluding to with like his ridiculously high conversion ratings. And I, I can build you whatever argument I want to build you. I just have to find the blocks from wherever, be it stats or tactics, or just like throwing the two out and saying that uh, football's a game of opinions and this is mine and it's more valid than yours. Right, there's so little accountability. Like, you can say something completely rubbish... And then, like, two weeks later, I'm sure, like, um, you could you could dig more examples up pretty easily. But just if someone's saying something, then two weeks later, it's either just proven to be, like, straight up false. Yeah. Well, just... the worst bit is when people say things that are right, but then, like, attack it from the complete wrong angle. Like, the reason I got annoyed at Miguel Delaney on, or over that Shelby article was because he was saying, like, Shelby's good, whatever, yet. Like, me as a Swansea fan, I'm reading that. I'm like, oh, my God, I love John Joe Shelby. This is great. But I just thought... I'd read a said Stafford Bloor Shelby piece earlier that day that was so much better. Like, it didn't stick to, like, a six sample size. Not saying Miguel Delaney did, but, I mean, I, I thought he did at the time. Uh, I just thought that it could go so much more in-depth, and it's lazy. We're just a conclusion-based uh, ecosystem right now. It's just like, uh, uh, Rogers should have left. That's my title. You're reading that for the title. You're not reading it for an argument. So I think the solution is, like, a BuzzFeed for football analytics we looked into Brentford's <laughs> and you'll never guess what happened next. 
Social experiments. We'll like hang out outside football stadiums talking about PDO and just be like, you won't believe what this random football fan said to Tom Werbel about PDO. <laughs> you won't believe what this metric says about Brentford. <laughs> yeah, I, lo- I love to do that. Stand outside a football club, talk about stats and see how many like bruises and, bruises and black eyes I come out with at the end of the day. <laughs> Dear. Anyway, isn't BuzzFeed for analytics what interpresses, Bobby? Or do you want to... Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> yeah, well, Interpress is kind of uh, a baby born of alienation with football journalism because, I mean, I, I, I see myself as part of the analytics community, but I kind of feel like the kid in the class sitting at the front of the room trying really hard to understand but doesn't really get it and, like, goes home and gets, like, B-pluses and he's upset because he, he forgot to read the article on Expected PDO before it's talked about on the podcast this evening. And so... I feel a lot more versed with mainstream journalism and I was frustrated because like genuinely my, my main objective, I think the main objective of most aspiring writers is to, is to get better first and foremost. I know I'm not Miguel Delaney. I might think I have like more aptitude or at least as much aptitude or something like that. I know that I'm not Miguel Delaney and I'm not Rory Smith, but I want to get there. And most of the sites that I'm writing for aren't even giving me editorial red lines. They're not even telling me what grammar they took. And with Interpress, one of the biggest things we found is like, We'll criticize a writer's article. We'll be like, you shouldn't have done this. You shouldn't have done that. I think um, you could have done this in half as many words. And they'll be like, thank you so much for giving me um, some sort of feedback. I'm not saying I, like this is a revolutionary. It's just along with the clickbait thing that we were talking about, the buzzfeed of, of football, it all becoming, I call it content horror because I can't find a pre-watershed term for it yet. But um we, we, a friend of mine from university and I started Interpress because we were just, we were trying to be something different. I don't know if it'll work. I don't know what we can get writers that isn't just the same as everything else. But at the moment, we're uh, looking into a partnership with UMaxit Football, which should end up in something good. So, yeah, if, if there's any writers out there or anyone who wants to, you know, like buy Interpress for like £2 billion um, and help us, I mean, don't actually do that because then I'll have to Zuckerberg, my co founder. But yeah, get in contact with me uh, I'm on Twitter at, at Bobby Gardner if you don't already follow me don't because I hate you um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh, also Interpress which is just like into Impress um, but yeah do help us I don't know give us advice we, we don't really know what we want to put out so if there's anything like you feel like you haven't seen like you want I don't know Bournemouth versus what for tactics we have Tom Payne willing to analyse games and I, I would love to see Tom Payne analyse something like Leicester Stoke which is why I tried to vote when he did that vote for thing. We have Tom Payne do democratic tactical analysis, so we vote for who he wants to, or not who he wants to, who he has to analyse. And um, Barcelona, Atletico Madrid won. But next time, vote for Norwich, Stoke, whatever. I'll, I'll throw random games in and, and tell me what you want. So we want to talk a little bit about Liverpool because they were the big story this week. So obviously, Brendan Rodgers is out the door. And there was a lot of a lot of hot takes going on, on Twitter this week. So Ben, do you want to start off on your thoughts on the Brendan Rodgers firing? I was not expecting that. Um, I don't know. I think I think the difficulty in a, and this is a really really boring answer, and I'm sorry, but um, I think the difficulty in analysing manager sackings is we just don't know what goes on in clubs, right? They're like this black box. So you could have a Sunderland, which I'm pretty sure are making bad decisions. Um, or making decisions for, like, bad reasons. But, you know, Liverpool could be made, could be sacking Brendan Rodgers because they have just terrible planning in the summer. They didn't do it in May. 
or whatever, or they could have deliberately decided, right, we'll keep him on through the summer. The image of continuity is important in recruitment. Um, then at the beginning of the season, say, like, actually, Klopp is now available. He wasn't before. Let's get rid of Brendan, bring him in. Um, but we just don't know whether there is a plan or not. Like I said, that's a really lame answer. I'm sorry. Yeah. I think, first of all, I want to say, uh, Brendan, if you're listening, uh, chin up. Um, <laughs> secondly, I agree. Like you, We just don't know what's happening inside of clubs. And also, because of Liverpool's like management structure, it's really different, difficult to know whether um, FSG, like what motives that they have. Um, you know, do they, you know, do they want, the, want, you know, want to win the Premier League this year? Or do they really think Rodgers is doing that badly with those players? Which it sort of seems to be like from... You know the uh, what's happening in the media currently. Essentially, thinking that the new manager could get more out of the current, the new signings than Rodgers currently has done. So it's difficult to know. And obviously, you're going to have a lot of the mainstream journalists speculating. And you know the whole the way that modern media goes is built on clicks. So like you know you're going to have some real rubbish stuff come out. But equally, you know he's done okay, and I don't think he's been an amazing manager. But he hasn't been a bad one. But equally, you know, if Klopp's available and he's probably going to cost the club similar money in terms of wages, you might as well go for it. Because I feel Klopp's much more of a long-term manager than Rodgers is. Uh, Rogers he's a seven-season manager, Klopp. A seven-season. But I mean, I, my, my big thing with, with Rodgers is just, it's the Goodman, um, the Mike Goodman. Why now? I just I just don't get it. Um I mean, like people would be like Rogers performed par, yes, but we all know that the par of a board isn't going to be the same as what we think their par is, um, because they're going to want Champions League. But I, I feel like I just it completely boggles me why you sack it now. So I was thinking about this before, and I think my my original thoughts were, um, yeah, like if you have little enough faith, I mean, unless something's gone like something massive has changed, if you have little enough faith to be convinced into sacking him now, why do you have enough faith to keep him on over the summer? Why not change it when the cost is so little? But um, I think someone tweeted earlier, I can't remember who, um, maybe you could add a link in the description afterwards, but the idea that actually the cost at the beginning of the season of a sacking isn't actually that great. I mean, they are only three points away from the Champions League places, Chelsea and God knows what's happening there. Um, so, and, and he said that the kind of the idea that there appears to be continuity at Liverpool, keeping Brendan Rodgers on over the summer, is um, more important than changing. So, it's the perception of stability is is, is more valuable to Liverpool essentially um, over the summer than the cost of firing him now. If that makes sense. Well, I think it all sort of comes down to how much influence you think Brendan Rodgers had over Liverpool's transfer strategy this summer, which the media narrative seems to suggest very little. And in that case, I mean, there's not a big, I don't think there's a big issue with saying, here's eight games, do what you, we're keeping you on a tight leash. We want Klopp. We know Klopp's going to be available for all this year, barring something crazy going on. And here's eight games. See how well you can do. If you don't meet our standards, you're gone. And we're going to keep with these players who we know are good enough under you or good enough under Klopp. So I don't, I don't think it's that big of a deal to give them these extra games. And I sort of agree with you. I think the perception of stability might be different than the actual like 
stability at the club. And it could right. be that there's a lot, like, I mean, a lot probably won't change at Liverpool other than Brendan Rodgers being gone and Klopp being in, who I'm sure they've had in mind for longer than two days since they fired Brendan Rodgers. I mean, another big thing with Rodgers is, uh, is fan pressure because uh, it's a little bit like when Laudrup got sacked. When Laudrup got sacked, the whole of the mainstream media was like, hey, what the hell is this? People who weren't particularly versed in what was going on at Swansea or whatever were also like, hey, what the hell is this? But most Swansea fans were like, yeah, meh, fair enough. Um, let's get him out. And all of my friends who support Liverpool are saying that like, whenever John Henry or any of the FSG tweet, the first like 2,000 replies are sack Rodgers. And so I can kind of see why maybe the people at the top of, of Liverpool are kind of going, well, we've got all this pressure from the cop, metaphorically, telling us to push him out. Maybe let's do that. And I guess pushing him out early is fair enough. That's what, that's what we did with Wildrup as well. But um, the issue here is like we can spin this story whichever way we want. We can justify Rogers going. We can say that it probably doesn't make that much sense. But we've seen all the opinion pieces on all of that. Um, I love Rogers. I'm going to put that out there. I think Brendan is like Tim Sherwood had a baby with Pep Guardiola. And uh, I think it's amazing fun. And I hope he gets a job and is suitably mediocre but almost amazing again. Because he, he's kind of who got me into football to the level that I am now. So I wasn't that into it before I started sporting Swansea. I think also if you look at like the Rodgers <laughs> sacking objectively, um, I was looking at some Club ELO data the other day, uh, naturally, um, and his like ELO rating as a manager has dropped since like midway through 2013, I think. So essentially ever since that near title push, the, his like ELO rating has just gone down and down and down and down. So evidently like that's not telling of his management style and things like that, but obviously results on the pitch haven't really gone in his favour. And it's not like he's had a, a, you know, a really, really strong case to say, you know, keep me on, I've done these things right recently. You know, they, they are only six points off the top, but equally like we're really close to the start of the season. And, you know, his form could kept going, you know, quite bad. They could easily finish seventh or eighth this season. And, it's, I, I know it's, it's like a weird time to sack him, but equally, when you look at the data on how, it's, how he is performing, you know it's probably not the most crazy of decisions to you know have been made. I mean, this is also sort of kind of conspiracy theory-ish, but a lot of people were saying that with the Chelsea manager situation being sort of in flux right now, that Klopp might be more tempted by that if Mourinho did leave and Liverpool would just want to be the first ones at him, which I don't think is a crazy idea. Or the Sunderland job, according to Harry Redknapp. <laughs> so they said that Klopp should go for the Sunderland job because it's a project, which is a... It's a project, it's all right. Project. I think that's because Redknapp wants the Liverpool job. He wants to get all the competition out of it. <laughs> Something that that's the real conspiracy. <laughs> I think another thing, going back to Rogers quickly, um, is like... So one of the arguments I saw for keeping him or for saying the sacking was unfortunate was that he'd performed at expectations. But if you're a club like Liverpool, constantly on like the periphery of breaking into the top four, if you don't have the resources to compete consistently for the top four or for the title, I don't think there's anything wrong with saying like, right, Rodgers is at expectation, but we want to take a chance on someone that can push us up. I mean, if you get someone else in and that costs you and you drop down to, I don't know, eighth from fifth or sixth to eighth. Like that's not going to cost you that much. 
but then you're also gambling, you know, the potential upswing is, is potentially more. Um, so I think... Rogers wasn't exactly hitting fifth every season either. It's not like he actually hit par every season. He, like, scraped underneath, underachieved, and then had one season which was like he nearly had a hole in one. It was, it was insane, but... Um, what I don't, what I kind of don't get is that I think I think Goodman made this argument as well as like if you want to be achieving over your par, which is fair enough as a board, you say okay, we want to be getting Champions League, we'll spend the wages of fifth. You kind of need that variance. You kind of need to go from eighth to second and then be like, oh wow, maybe we can keep this up. So Rogers was that person with the swings. So I don't, I just don't get why you say okay, we've got time to have him for this season. But you won't wait for the whole of it because whenever Rogers has had a slump, it's been followed by like he'll change formation and all of a sudden it's good again. Um, I just I just don't get it. But I mean, maybe maybe it's a lens thing. Maybe it's bias because I think he's amazing. But I don't actually think he's that amazing. I just want to clarify that I am being a little bit ironic. But maybe I think sort of another point, And I was reading on the the gossip column today, so make of it what you will. But um, there was a point around Philip Coutinho essentially saying. You know, he wants to leave unless he gets the you know, bumper contract or whatever. And essentially, that he's either going to go in, he wants to go in January or June. So it could be his agent spinning that or something, I don't really know. But if you keep Rodgers in as the manager, he's not like the most inspiring of guys. And the performances and how they've done recently, they're like a fourth, fifth, sixth base team in the league. So if you're, you're looking to like sack him and bring in Klopp, it will ensure that the club keeps attracting high profile talent and also retains the talent that they have currently. So if that team was to lose Coutinho, <clears throat> he's a massive, you know, producer in their attack, and he's, he's just extremely pivotal for that team. They don't really have anyone else like him, you know, in that actual setup. So if they lost him, it probably, you know, do them a lot more damage than good in both the short and long term. Um, and you know, their track record of purchasing players to fill holes in the team, you know, Firmino is not exactly set the league alight like he had did in the Bundesliga previously. So just retaining that talent and not having to actually plug those gaps, you know, is going to add value if they can replace Rodgers with someone a bit more expi- inspiring like Klopp and retaining those players. So, you well, know. I mean, I mean you, you say that, but Suarez's autobiography, I, I use auto in inverted commas because, I mean, it's obviously ghostwritten. It's so complimentary of Rodgers. Like, Rodgers dragged Suarez from like a 14-21 to like a 31 league all season. I mean, I'm just speculating. It's something like that. So I don't know, like what drew Coutinho to the club, um, and what's kept him there. He's one hundred percent going to Barcelona. My, my, my good friend who supports Liverpool says as well. Coutinho is going to Barcelona. It's more a matter of when. But I mean, surely if it's the like keeping our best players, you gamble on that before Suarez. Anyone else? Or maybe I don't know. Maybe they just can't keep Suarez. I mean, that's that's the alternative explanation is that like Coutinho is is could possibly stay, and Suarez was way too good, but. Um, I think with Suarez there are a lot of other factors. The fact that he, you know, he had a, a history of biting people, which essentially didn't go down very well in the media, <laughs> and also is arguably a third best player in the world. Yeah, I mean, it's naturally that players, apart from say maybe Rooney, sort of converge to the top two in the Spanish league. You know, you see Bale going. Well, I'm running out of options already, but <laughs> you see Bale going. <laughs> 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 you see one you see one good player go to Real Madrid and you instantly pull a conclusion about every other good player going to that team Thomas Marlon Alex <clears throat> no but Hamas Rodriguez like Matteo Kovacic is heading that way slowly Modric was far too good for Spurs but he would never be sold to a rival 
Um, Thierry Henry was essentially good for Arsenal and he mm. wanted better ambition and goes to Barcelona. Uh, Van Nisselrooy fell up with Man United, went to Real Madrid. Like slowly the talent converges there and it would have been Italy in the past but the quality of that league's you know, not it's as good as the money, isn't it? Like all the, like the Premier League is becoming like the European middle class. Like all of the other clubs can't compete with the money of the Premier League and then the only ones that can really bully the Premier League are Bayern, Real the oligarchs. Yeah. So I guess another one of those oligarchs is potentially Chelsea. Um, and obviously Mourinho's had a poor run of results recently and they're sitting and are not very pretty 16th, I think. Um, so what do you boys think about Mourinho? Do you think it's time for him to leave or... Does he need more time? Is this just one of those freak things like we had with Dortmund a few seasons back where they just did appallingly badly and it was just they were very unlucky? Um, or do you think there's more to it than that? Well, I think they've definitely been unlucky, but nowhere near to the extent Dortmund was last year. Because, I mean, if you look at Chelsea in the second half of last year when they won the title, they were they were struggling the whole way and they were winning a lot of games 1 0. So there's, games, there's a lot of game state stuff in their shot numbers. But I do think that. There, there is some actual structural problems at Chelsea that go beyond what was happening at Dortmund last year. Well, yeah, the, the problem with Chelsea is no one knows what's what's happening. Like, Tom, if you tried to do a what the hell is going on at Brentford about Chelsea right now, we wouldn't really know. I, I mean, I, I had a cursory look into some of their numbers last week, he says, like looking into a crystal ball, but like Eden's numbers, like everyone's saying, oh, it's, it's the Eden performance. He's kind of doing around the same apart from scoring, like, Shots are about the same. Passes about the same. Costa's like having nearly half the amount of shots inside the area. But I mean, again, it's kind of hard to figure out why. This is where I feel like I need like a Tom Payne or I need someone tactically to kind of help me out here because Fabregas as well having a bad season. But in terms of like key passes, chances created, they're not that far down. Um, Williams, the exact same player. So I, I just I don't really understand it. And defensively, I, I mean, we have all the problems that's been discussed on here before about trying to quantify defenders. But why is their defence suddenly coming apart? So I, I don't, I don't think I could ever say sack Mourinho when I, I don't know what the hell's going on. I think the the defence is a good point to highlight. <clears throat> and I, uh, I checked out Paul Riley's expected goal numbers just before we jumped on here, and they're currently second worst uh, in the league behind Sunderland in terms of expected goals against, uh, with fourteen point nine five, which is like a stupidly high figure. Um, and obviously they've had some problems with Ivanovic. Like he, you can look. At the, at the footage of him just getting skinned constantly by uh, Jefferson Montero and quite a few other players in the league. But it, it can't be that he's had one summer off and suddenly he's like a lot a lot worse player than he was compared to last season. Like, is there structurally things there uh, at the back? I mean, John Terry's been dropped for Kurt Zuma a few times. Is there like, you know, leadership things that they've missed out on without him in the team? Like, do you have all these intangibles that you can't measure so it's kind of hard to poor conclusions that are uh, significant from that but yeah and also sort of their expected goal four numbers as well they've only um, sort of created an expected goals tally of 8.78 which is about on par with Everton this season so it's not I mean they they were overperforming expected goals last season as well I think the three biggest outliers were Swansea, QPR and Chelsea so um, it's kind of like a, a gladback situation because when they completely flop, I mean, how do we lose the like unquantifiable overperformance? How do we know 
how much of this this Chelsea run is just things not going their way that were going their way before that we couldn't even see in the expected goals models, um, and how much of it is just random. Like their shots numbers, they're like eighth last for shots in general conceded, but they're complete last in terms of shots on target. Like, is that just random? Are they just like being really unlucky, or are they conceding high quality chances for some weird reason compared to last season? I mean, I genuinely have no idea. But if you look at Gladbach, they had three straight years of overperforming expected goals, both on the offensive and defending side. And they were, I mean, I think they exceeded expected goals by the most in the Bundesliga on both sides of the ball for three years. As They were the most, they exceeded expected goals by the most in the Bundesliga on either side of the pitch for three years in a row. Chelsea didn't have that. So I think you can look a little more into last year's getting lucky at times. Yeah, so that's fair enough. But then, I mean, this this Chelsea isn't a regression to the mean, is it? It's, it's the equivalent of Aguero scoring five goals. It's so far past that that Found I don't them. really know how to explain it. Have dropped significantly. I think um, so. I think there's a couple of things potentially going on. So one is that last year, like Mourinho, like rode his core core squad. Maybe I shouldn't say that. Maybe I should rephrase that. But Mourinho like kept his core squad and played them over and over and over and over and over. And maybe that's kind of quite helpful to team chemistry. Um, you know, they must have been knackered. And I think that showed in the second half of the season. But I think um, there's the, uh, obviously, the John Byrne Murdoch um, data viz uh, interactive graphic, which showed that. And I think um, what his analysis suggested was that Burnley and Chelsea were the two, were the two teams which kind of, use the smallest core squad and, and use players with playing almost all of the minutes. I, I think John Terry Ivanovic played basically all the minutes last season. Like They're old, that's a lot to be doing. Um, so I think that could have had an effect. Um, I think also there's issues like, I think, so I think one thing that's been mentioned a lot is the um, playing a high line for Chelsea. But I think the issue hasn't, and that's, you know, when Terry's been dropped for Zuma, there's been talk about having more pace for recovery or whatever. But I think from what I've seen, and, and this, I mean, feel free to disagree with me because um, you know, I haven't watched that much Chelsea this season, but I think the pressing hasn't been as kind of cohesive in front of the back four, which has left them more exposed, um, which could, could be related to conceding more uncrewed chances. Um, and then lastly as well, there was that thing was in the Irish Times or something, but on Mourinho... And suggesting that his kind of quite combative psychology um, and kind of his digging in and kind of causing this abrasive atmosphere basically backfired and isn't as good with some of the Chelsea players in the squad at motivating them as it was with the players he had his first time at Chelsea or with Inter. It's also hard to discount the whole sort of second season syndrome as well. I mean, we saw it with Manuel Pellegrini and City last year. They were just like completely off the boil towards the second half of the season once the league was lost. Like I know it's hard to to use that same excuse for the start of the season eight games in, but equally it could be a factor that the players are like, well, we won the league last year. Do we really need to try as hard this year? And maybe that's like a conscious thing or it could be a subconscious thing. It's difficult to sort of determine, but that could be a factor. Oh, well, I don't really, I'm not sure I buy that as much. I mean, maybe it's, maybe it's a, a big thing, but I mean, these are professionals that have trained their whole lives to be doing this. Now, I was saying to Sam earlier, professional footballers 
have played football more than I will probably ever do a single thing in my life apart from like sleep. Um, so the idea that they kind of win the league and they're just like, ah, oh, nah, don't fancy it. I'm not sure if I. I mean, second season syndrome is that not just kind of more likely to be regression or reversion to the mean? But, but equally, we haven't seen that. Like like we were saying earlier, the underlying numbers are poor. It's not like they're being unlucky. Right. I mean, that's yeah, that's my point. It's just you kind of said it could be second season syndrome. We saw that with Man City, but I guess I kind of, I'm not sure that second season syndrome. I don't know. It's difficult because it's not for us. It's not a tangible thing because none of us have ever been in a professional sports team before that's just won the league. Like... I'll have you know I won the county Middlesex Cup when I was 11, Tom. That was a serious atmosphere. We had an Arsenal player did you have, playing for us. Did you have second season syndrome? Um, we didn't win the county cup the next year, actually. Tom, you've just destroyed my childhood footballing career as, as nostalgia. And, and I've just proved Ben wrong, wrong in there. <laughs> <laughs> no, like, Ben, I see, I see the point. Like, it... It, on on like paper, the the idea of a second season syndrome doesn't make sense, and I've completely bought into the media narrative that City weren't interested in winning the league the second year around. But equally, like what are the the underlying numbers are poor? Is there like a lack of squad harmony, and it's the whole Eva Carnero thing blown up in Mourinho's face? There are so many things at play here that could be the reason for you know Chelsea being bad. But I think on the face of it, it's not that they are you know they're being. Unf- Unfortunately, on the pitch, it's definitely something underlying that we don't know about. I also well, it's probably a combination of factors. That, that's the most complicated thing about this is that there's probably a whole number of variables going into this, coinciding at the right moment of time to make Chelsea bad. And I mean, you say you say that they're not unlucky, but it could still be a pendulum. They could still suddenly become amazing in two weeks once things click. We saw with Man City how all of a sudden, and I mean, Man City's numbers still aren't bad, but their results got worse. Um, how quickly things can change. I'm not convinced by Mourinho losing the dressing room, though, because I just I just think if there's one thing Mourinho's not going to do, it's it's lose his dressing room. Uh, I'm just thinking about like that video of him crying with Matarazzi or whatever after they um, win the Champions League. But I'm I'm not convinced that he's losing the dressing room. I think he could be losing his tactical news or something like that. But, but I'm not convinced that the players don't like him or whatever. Right, I think my point with second season syndrome, sorry, is just more that, kind of like Bobby says, there are so many factors. To invoke second season syndrome is just non-descriptive, it doesn't tell us anything. Um, you know, there could well be issues with motivation or with Mourinho's tactics or whatever, but second season syndrome just isn't a helpful descriptor of any process. Well, uh, second season syndrome is probably a bit like a PDO, isn't it? So like... Yes, they have second season syndrome. They do, but why? Because there's no textbook definition of why take, um, second season syndrome happens. It'd be an interesting thing to study. Well, James Grayson looked at it on his blog like probably two or maybe more years ago now, and he looked at teams that um, second, syndrome, second season syndrome in the context of promoted teams, and what he suggested was that actually um, the teams that suffer second season syndrome are basically just the ones that had high PDO. There we are again. Yeah, yeah, had high PDO and stayed up. And then that PDO kind of dropped back to a more normal level the next season, and then they got relegated because they're actually not a great team. Um, I don't know know if someone's looked at it specifically for title-winning teams, 
But I would suggest it's something similar because title winning teams do tend to get a bit lucky just because it, yeah, just because that's what they do. Yeah, someone did this once with looking at baseball rookie of the years and their second season after winning rookie of the year. And almost always their batting average was higher than like their underlying numbers should suggest the batting average should be. And it would fall back in the second year. And people would always say, oh, there was a, for a while in baseball, people talked about the curse of rookie of the year. And it just was regression to the mean, which is an easy answer to a question that people were associating a lot of sort of like mythic, mystical curses to. Okay, so... It's going to be quite a long one, so I think what we should do is uh, take a question each from Twitter. So, Bobby, first, who do you think is the most impressive young non-forward slash attacking midfielder so far this season? Um, does Dali Ali count? If so, I'm going to go with Dali Ali. If not, um, Brendan Galloway, I really like him. Um, I, I mean, I have no real justification for that other than I saw him play against Swansea and he was really good. And uh, John Stones... John Stones is worth forty million pounds. I'm saying this controversially on the podcast, but I, I like John Stones a lot now. And I think that's just seeing him and being like, "Wow, he's cool." But I don't really know anything about centre backs. I've said to you guys before, uh, we don't really know what to do with centre backs. So I've decided I like John Stones. I'd back up the Galloway shout. I really liked him so far. Ben, who do you think is going to get relegated? Um, right. Okay. Um, I think Sunderland are probably gone. Which finally, unless they managed to pull that one out of the bag. Um, other than that, who else is really bad? Um, Newcastle could go, and that would make me very happy. But they have a lot of talent in their squad, um, so I'm not as sure about that. Um, yeah, so Sunderland definitely. Then. I don't know, West Brom. West Brom, you think? <laughs> I mean, I, I know that they're like, West Brom's numbers, like they're conceding a lot of shots. And when you, like I saw, I've seen them a couple of times this season and they just look so kind of just desperately passive, I guess. But equally it's Tony Pulis. And <laughs> I just, ever since that Crystal Palace kind of salvation, like I, I just, I'm not sure I can bet against him. Um, but then I'm not sure who else. Bournemouth. I mean, Bournemouth have been super unlucky with like three cruciate injuries. So I pegged them before this season to be Swansea 2.0, but I, I think they may just be so unlucky. Yeah, I think that's possible. But I think... Um, so I think the underlying numbers aren't that bad, although they have had quite an easy like fixture list so far, and they're about to head into like a much harder period. So I don't know... They might be further adrift after that. <laughs> Sorry, suddenly. <coughs> so Sunderland, West Brom, and Bournemouth. Is that what we're going with? It's your question, mate. <laughs> it's my question. It is, uh, yeah. You're going to get all the abuse on Twitter afterwards, so you've got to think through this. I'll go with Sunderland, Newcastle, um, and West Brom. I think. Big, hot takes. Um. So, Sam, the question for you is, do you care about fantasy sports? I tried playing fantasy football once, and I hated it. because I, It changed the way I watched games. Like, I would be watching the team with one of my players on them, and I'd find I'd be focusing so much on that player that I'd miss out on, like, a lot of other stuff. 
And the other thing I hated was when one of my players would be playing Man United, and like I remember I had Drogba on my team, but one year I played and Drogba scored against United that year, and I had this like little pang of guilt that I was a little happy that he scored, and I hated that feeling. <laughs> so yeah, I played it once and never did it again, and I don't think I'm going to go back into it. Can I just say that um, Ben is currently second in the Fanalytics Fantasy Football League? Yeah, when the, when the, when the script thing came out, um, I, I, um, I checked that because I was like, oh, how's that doing? I, like, I hadn't touched it in three weeks and found out I was first, I was first for a while. So there we go. First place is now Ian Baldwin, though. So it's, yeah. I think, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever done it, but draft fantasy is really, really cool. And I only ever wanted to do it because there's that American sitcom called The League about like a bunch of guys who have a draft NFL fantasy. And so I went for it. And I, th- I think it's so much cooler because like, I see Aguero score five goals. And in the generic fantasy, I'm like, oh crap, did I make him captain? And then the other one, I'm like, oh crap, I didn't, I can't even have him. Like I have Bafetimvi Gomez up front and I'm stuck with that for the rest of the season unless I trade. And so I think that's a lot more fun. I like the way the Americans do it. Yeah, me and my friends have like an NFL fantasy league and we started it because of that show. <laughs> I think we should start one next year. Everyone just has to come with their army of spreadsheets and clipboards and stuff like that. <laughs> um, cool. The question that I've got is essentially where do I stand on Sherwood and what's up with Newcastle and Sunderland? Um, so, I don't know. Sherwood, I quite like Tim Sherwood for the comedy value that he provides uh, and also the fact that like every single game he plays and they lose is like the worst day of his life. Um <laughs> Equally, Aston Villa are an, in a, in a, are an interesting team because over the summer they obviously hired a new sort of director of football and he seems to be quite analytically versed, as it were. Um, they signed Jordan Amavi, who I really, really like. Um, Rudy Gestead is, you know, he evidently has some sort of skill when it comes to heading. Um, but equally, like, those numbers make sense. But then again, when you look at heading and, and uh, Sam, you probably have seen this from your sort of Opta Pro proposal from last year that like crossing as a uh, like a stylistic choice is one of the like lesser uh, I don't know you have less chance of scoring from headers from crosses essentially so you will have to pump the box with loads and loads of crosses to really benefit from that so I mean in terms of how they tactically set up I've not really seen that much of Aston Villa but um, if they are setting up and crossing a lot, and you know that on the face of it, it doesn't look like a very reliable s- source of shots and/or goals. Um, so I quite like Tim Sherwood. I quite like how the team's made up. They've got some sort of quite a lot of young players who are slowly approaching peak age. So you know, in a few seasons, that team will be quite strong. Um, Do you not think that their transfer buys seem a bit erratic? Like I don't, I, I don't know if it's just because they're doing badly that I'm saying this, but like you see. Um, like Rob, Rob McKenzie had that column on Sky Sports about scouting stylistically and like looking for Mares because he was a counter-attacking, centre-attacking mid. And I just think you buy Jordan Veritu, Jordan Amavi, Jordan Ayew, and Rudy Gestead, and it makes no sense because stylistically they're they're so different. Three of them are going to play really good on the ground football, and the other, well, I mean, Amavi can cross, but it's it's sort of a drilled cross a lot of the time, um, and it just doesn't seem cohesive to me. Is that the clash of the new director of football coming in with Tim Sherwood? I think it's quite interesting that they've essentially raided League uh and got like quite a lot of their signings from there. Um a lot of people have seen League One League uh, 
as like a undervalued <laughs> league in the past. And obviously, like you could probably get players for a lot cheaper of similar quality there than say I don't know La Liga or the the Bundesliga. Um, and then you have sort of Adama Traore from Barcelona B, which is pretty much like a random signing because he's from like a lower you know team. But equally on the face of it, that the sort of second division in Spain is quite strong as well, more so than. Uh, the championship yeah. and quite a few other leagues, so that seems as well like could be quite a smart signing. Obviously, we're it looking kind at of it. just it, it looks to me a little bit like a mini Liverpool, like buying a load of value players that I'm not sure um, fit cohesively into any sort of tactics or style, and the tactics coming secondarily, like Rogers fitting the formation to players rather than a Leicester or a Southampton who seem to buy players that fit straight in. But I think if you're Aston Villa, like the tactic of just buying value players and not that concerned about whether they fit in, probably you can get away with it more than if you're Liverpool. Because maybe, yes. I mean, it may well be that Aston Villa's tactic is just to buy these value players, sell them on in a couple of years for much more, like with Benteke. Um, and if they, you know, if they all click, that's great. But the main thing is just, like, getting that revenue stream from these undervalued players. I mean, it may be that it's an erratic erratic stylistically because they're just buying players without much concern for style. Definitely, I definitely agree with that. Like, If you look at, say, Jordan Amavi, it's either going to be him or um, Avi and Kurzawa who are going to be going for the left-back spot for the French national team. And Kurzawa's now at PSG. So like, you've got one player at PSG, one at Villa. They're going to get more than £10 million for him when slash if they come to sell him in a couple of years' time. Um, and equally, like, it's still very early days of these signings. There's still a lot of, say, I don't know, gelling, if there is such a thing, which it probably is for them to do. Uh, Sherwood's still probably thinking himself, you know, what's the best way for this team to set up? Um, Jack Grealish doesn't look like an out-and-out winger. He looks, you know, potentially better as, like, an inside forward or an attacking midfielder. But I don't know, I quite like Aston Villa. I just hope they don't get relegated and, and sort of the Sherwood project, as it were, continues. Um in terms of Newcastle and Sunderland, I guess we've sort of already covered it. Sunderland are just dreadful. And whoever takes them, that manager job is, uh, you know, very brave because <laughs> they good are just project. terrible. Yeah, a good long-term project in terms of you're probably going to have to go down to come up again. Uh, and Newcastle, like, it just reaffirms my point that Mitrovic is a terrible signing. <laughs> he, will, he, he is a smart signing. I don't see how you can call Mitrovic not a smart signing. I mean, I think that they could have been equally smart signings, like maybe Charlie Austin instead for But, I mean, Mitrovic, money-wise, uh, potential-wise, Champions League experience, his age, I just think. I mean, I, that was a super smart signing. I, I'm glad that Swansea didn't do it, because he seems like a bit of a hothead, and I'm just going to decide that, because I'm a fan. But I think Mitrovic was super smart. I don't know. I, I, It's just for the money, it seems a lot. And then again, I am swayed by the fact that he's had bookings and sendings off in his first few games and he scored like one goal uh, like I'm basing that off a few things there but you know he, he could come good it's just that I think that like you say Charlie Austin is probably the better signing considering his, he was proven in the Premier League with a pretty appalling QPR side I know he has got his yeah. injury doubts and stuff like that but um, yeah I just really hope Mitch Rich is crap and Newcastle go down <laughs> so I don't have to say uh, I was wrong <laughs> I think, like, you say that about Mitrovic, but by your own, like, admission, he's got sent off a few times, yes, but he's played so little, like, he's barely, like, 
we're barely into the season. I don't think. But then again, equally, if you had a player who, say, I don't know, someone who came from a league similar to the Belgian league and literally, you know, completely tore it up and score. Wilfred uh, Burnley. Yeah, he scored like a crazy. Well, he, he's a bad example because he's come good. <laughs> but, yeah, yeah. But Alfonso um, Alves. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> like he looks, he looks really good in that league, and then he comes across, and people are expecting the same thing. It's literally just like I mean, Mitrovic scored in the Champions League. He scored against Arsenal. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention that, but thanks. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. We'll see. But I think even if he doesn't come good, Mitrovic was a smart signing at the time for me. I don't know about like Tobin and. Um, uh, which Naldum I think is a great signing. I don't know about Mbemba, but just because he looks a bit weird um, defensively, I think that's I think that's Newcastle. I, th- I mean, again, I think it's erratic signings because um, they don't seem to fit any sort of cohesive plan. But then again, I wouldn't be saying that if they were eighth. So who knows? Cool. Um, before we go, a couple of plugs. Um, Sam, do you want to do the one for Ryan? Yeah, so I just want to do a quick reminder that the OptiPro forum uh, submissions are due on October 18th, and you can figure out all the info on how to submit on the OptiPro site. Just Google OptiPro forum. We'll stick a uh, link in the description as well. And uh, Bobby, Sam, anything else? Um, Interpress is pretty cool. I don't think I've mentioned it too often yet. So yeah, follow Interpress and tell us what you want. Nailed it. Ben? I don't think I have anything. Thanks to Ben and Bobby for appearing on this podcast and to Sam as well. Um, Speak to you next time.